Today I'm chatting with Submit Hub founder Jason Grishkoff. How are you today, Jason? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, it's it's 8 p.m. over here in Cape Town, and I guess I'm just winding down the day. Excellent. And how are you managing in the midst of COVID-19? Oh God, it's you know it's it's kind of rough and and hardcore down here in South Africa. So we mm. haven't been able to buy alcohol for 47 days now. And and they also banned cigarettes. And I I don't smoke, but that just gives you an indication of how intense they're being. And so everyone's been going along happily. We're not allowed out of the house except to shop and that type of stuff. But uh, slowly, I think people's feathers are starting to get ruffled and they're they're wondering, really? Does it have to be this intense? So... Yep. Yeah, more and more people are are questioning it. And... uh... As far as the smoking thing is concerned, I mean, I'm about to complete a launch cycle this week of a book and a companion course, which I'm sure many of our listeners know is pretty intense, but uh, would love to celebrate with a cigar and scotch. (laughs) Well, then don't come to South Africa, huh? Yeah, don't come to South Africa. (laughs) Of course, I mean, you could probably get on a plane, but not like there would be anywhere to go anyway. We can't. No no planes allowed. There's no flights in and out of the country. Okay. Um, and no domestic flights either. You're not allowed to move between uh, cities or provinces. If you yeah. are divorced and you're sharing your kids, you're not allowed to share them. They have to stay at wherever they began when the lockdown started 47 days ago. So wow. it's intense. Enjoy yeah. your scotch and your cigar. I will. Thank you. And I certainly <laughs> haven't, moved, haven't moved around at all. I've stayed at my friend's place in Calgary. I'm actually living in Abbotsford these days, close to Vancouver. But uh, I came out to Calgary in hopes of visiting friends and family. And, well, I'm stuck. <laughs> and yeah, I got Calgary's a serious... cool. Oh, yeah. It's all right. It's all right for visiting. I did a stampede once in, in, I think, 2011. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was a hell of an experience. Yeah, stampede is pretty cool. Uh, I've, well, met, I've been there many times. this year's canceled, right? Yeah, of course. There's not going to be any events this year, sadly. Womp womp. Yeah, was looking forward to going to Austin in uh, August for the DIY Musician Conference myself, but not sure that's going to happen. So there's, there's always 2023. Yep, always 2023. So I don't think too many of my listeners haven't heard of Submit Hub, and I would bet that some have even used it as part of their marketing initiatives. The moment a musician releases new music, it's quite likely they're thinking about getting coverage. Submit Hub is the logical next step for many as it simplifies the process. And, and in ways, really, we take for granted these days. With that in mind, success is not guaranteed, nor is Submit Hub for everybody. So how do you feel artists should approach their relationship with Submit Hub? My God, can I use you for like a, a radio advertisement? I mean, that was beautiful. Absolutely, uh, you can because <laughs> I know I've got a good voice and I can do a bit of voice acting too. Yeah, no, I think that was nicely put. Um, so, Submit Hub and artists, it, it's a bit of a rough relationship, I think, for most artists because yeah. you know you put your song up on Spotify and if you just leave it there, nothing's going to happen. No one's going to pay attention. You can send it to your mom and your dad, and they love it. Um, obviously your friends are not going to tell you they don't like it either. So people end up on, on services like SubmitHub. Um, well, I mean, SubmitHub in and of itself is pretty unique, but I think from an artist perspective, if you knew one of the first things you do is you go into Google and you type how to promote my music. Yes. And, and you got to be really careful about a lot of these sites that essentially offer you guaranteed success. Um, yeah. You know, five dollars you'll get ten thousand players or ten thousand followers or this type of thing. And it seems great. And I think a lot of people end up falling for it. But the reality of it is is that it's incredibly tough as a musician in twenty twenty to stand out and get attention. And yet on the flip side, I don't think it's ever been easier to get some attention. So um Submit Hub is really useful in that context as a tool to help you reach out to these curators and communicate with them in hopes that they'll end up sharing your song with their audience. But the reality of it is that for most artists, when they land on SubmitHub, they're faced with uh, just a bounty of rejection, if you will. So you can, mm-hmm. you know, you choose 50 curators to send your song to and you hear back from 45 of them within two days. And, and out of those 45, 40 of them told you that your song just wasn't good enough for them. And... I think for a first-time user of SubmitHub, that, that often leaves them 
uh, a bit shell-shocked, kind of wondering either is their music not good enough or is, is the service just a scam or, or what's going on with all of this? Um, and, and I mean, the reality of it is just that these curators are so absolutely spoiled for choice that they can pick and choose whatever they like, which is entirely subjective, and they have to come up with an excuse for the stuff they don't like. So mm. sometimes it's just a little yeah. bit tough to sit there and face that onslaught. But what's, what's cool and, and why I say it's actually never been better than 2020 is because those, those five people who did say they liked your song are really the ones that you should maybe focus on, right? You're trying to find your niche. And instead of, I think, focusing on, on finding, uh, you know, 10 million fans and breaking out and being all over Spotify's editorial playlists, it's probably a much better strategy to seek your, your 1,000 true fans, the, the people who mm. really resonate and connect with your music. Because I think the reality is you're just never going to be a pop star, a, a super famous musician. Um, I mean, good. I, I wish you the best, but just in general, I think, <laughs> I think one of the first things an artist has to come to terms with is that it's probably not them. Um, so, so finding those five people who really love your song can actually lead to the next 10 and the next 20 or the next 100, and it can open up a whole bunch of doorways. But along the way, you have to face a whole ton of rejection. And, and Submit Hub really helps by bringing that rejection straight to your inbox. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic and there's so much i want to touch on there but i think i've been listening to a lot of Derek sivers lately so one of the things he said was if you're sensitive to criticism maybe consider adopting a stage name or artist name separate from your own name and that way it's not you being criticized it's mr dj lava face or whatever that's being criticized instead and uh, maybe that would help some people create that separation in the in the process of rejection which we all know is is normal in this industry. Another thing by comment was just what you said about, you know, going from couch to TV screen or zero to hero dream, right? That's what a lot of artists have. And there's uh, certain marketers that try to sell to that, that segment of, of people who think they can become an instant pop star or instant superstar. And so I love that you said, you know, that's not accessible to, to many people or, or really any people, uh, we know that there's two songwriters that write the majority of hits in the music industry. And as far as being discovered goes, I mean, that is usually a 10 years in the making process. So uh, I love that you clarified that. Yeah, it's good to come into it with realistic expectations. And I think a lot of people don't. Um, so what we do with Submit Hub is we try to set those expectations as you go through the process. I mean, mm. if you read the, the copy on our website and sort of the about page and the introduction and all the emails that get sent along the way as you submit your campaign and you get your confirmation email and all that, I'm constantly reminding users that they should prepare for the worst because the reality, I mean, when, when you're looking at uh, Spotify getting 50,000 songs uploaded per day, it just having that context, I think, really helps you approach this tool differently. And so rather than thinking about Submit Hub as a ticket to success, think of it as a way to instead kind of wade through this incredibly diverse group of listeners that exist on the internet so that you can try and hone in on your niche, right? Mm. Um, even if you make a certain style of music, you're still going to find that 90% of the people who like that style of music won't like your music. So yes. It's about trying to find that 10% within the 10% within the 10% and then growing from there. And what's cool about Submit Hub is just that that directory allows you to really like focus in on, on who those people might be and try to identify and pitch them with your music. And while we don't guarantee that they're going to like it or share it, I think the service that we offer is really efficient and transparent when it comes to guaranteeing that they interact with, listen, consider and respond to your song. So that's fairly unique uh, in, this, in this entire kind of ecosystem of curation and, and music discovery. And it drives some people absolutely nuts. But I think <laughs> in, in large part, when one approaches it as a, as a tool for contacting people rather than uh, a tool for overnight success, you're going to be in a much better mindset and you're probably going to get a lot more value out of it. 
Yeah, I would say it's way more efficient because I remember the days of filling spreadsheets with names and links and email addresses and then submitting one by one. That was such a long and painful process. It sounds exciting at first, but by the time you've entered your 12th contact into your database, it's like, oh my God, how many more am I going to (laughs) enter? Right. And then you contact all of them and no one actually responds. Exactly. Um, 12 is not going to do a thing. You got to contact hundreds, if not thousands of people. Yeah. And and that, I mean, that's actually how SubmitHub came to be because my music blog, Indie Shuffle, ended up in so many of those spreadsheets that it became impossible Mm. to look at my inbox. And so I had to come up with a different solution. And and, I mean, that's the basis of SubmitHub. It, It wasn't built to take advantage of artists. It was really built for bloggers to have a better and more efficient way of handling the influx of new music that they got. So it was built with bloggers in mind, first and foremost, but what are we now, four and a half years old? Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole system at this point is built heavily based on, on, on the feedback that is provided by both artists and bloggers. So trying to strike that balance between the two (laughs) <laughs> has been has been challenging, but I think we're actually at a good place now, four and a half years later, where I reckon it's next to impossible to start up uh, a competitor to the service just because yeah. there's there's so much learning that's gone on along the way, and uh, there's so many things going on behind the scenes to try and make that that process more efficient. Um, all I can tell you is it is way better than a spreadsheet. I could see that for sure. Now. Is there such a thing as typical results for a Submit Hub user, or does it vary depending on the artist's budget, commitment, and body of work? I think you can improve the results that you receive on Submit Hub by spending a little bit more time. Hmm. So one of our top competitors, I suppose, is Playlist Push. And they are, for now, focused almost entirely on Spotify playlisters, and they actually have a very similar um, subset of playlisters. So, so a lot of the guys you see on Submit Hub are also listed on Playlist Push. But what's different with Playlist Push is that they actually will take care of the process for you. So you send them, I think their minimum budget is about $250, right? You send them $250, they'll choose who your song gets sent to, and at the end, they'll tell you what the results were. You don't really get any transparency into who they are sending your song to, what they look like, what their profiles are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so the real difference between Playlist Push and Submit Hub is that on Playlist Push, they'll take care of things for you. And on Submit Hub, you're going to have to take care of things for yourself. So mm-hmm. what we do is we provide you with an overwhelming amount of data, which we attempt to synthesize as best we can. Um, there's a couple sort of like a, a genre match, quality score, and influence score that are applied to every single curator on Submit Hub. But there's accompanying that a, a whole array of notes about the quality of the feedback, where they typically share, how many listeners they have on their Spotify playlist, etc. And so while hmm. I could say on average, the typical results are an approval rate of about 12% with premium credits and 5% with standard credits, I think you'll find that with a little bit more focus and attention, you can actually move that 12% up to a 20 or 30 or 40% approval rate. Hmm. And the trick there is to send to fewer people, but target them better. So I think a mistake some people make when they get onto Submit Hub is they, they jump right in, they buy the 400 credits package, which they can get for about $64 right now. And they just spend it all, right? They put in a genre and they select a bunch of people and they don't spend one or two minutes to look at each curator to try and identify whether they'll enjoy that style of music, what their typical shares look like, that type of thing. And so they'll send it to someone with a a 1% approval rate um, or someone who sometimes likes the genre, but they, you know, let's say you choose hip hop as your genre and they occasionally approve hip hop, but they really love commercial pop music, right? So Mm. just taking a little bit of time to assess who you're sending to and going, okay, well, maybe that person won't like my song because it really doesn't have any commercial flair to it. Um, will allow you to to drastically increase your results. So I don't think there's any typical number. It, it varies yeah. a lot on your song and who you target. But yeah, I, I think number one trick is definitely to focus on on what we call the genre match score and then just work with that. So anyone who's got a genre match score below a four, 
probably not worth sending to, I would say. Some really great insights there. And how do you think artists should use MidHub as part of their marketing mix? Or in other words, what other pieces are important for them to have if they want to maximize their results on SubmitHub? Right. I mean, promoting music in 2020 is a bit like throwing the ball of spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, it is, isn't it? Yeah. And, and so you never know where it's going to come from. You might go on SubmitHub, send your song to 100 curators, and maybe one or two pick it up, but it just never got any steam. And next thing you know, you share it on Reddit, and that just blows up, and, and you mm. really get a bunch of great followers from there. I think everyone's experience has gone to vary greatly. And um, so where does Submit Hub fit in to a sort of a holistic or complete marketing approach? Uh, look, it makes things really easy. Um, yeah. Let's give the example of a publicist in 2020, right? They're still around. Uh, there certainly aren't as many as there were in 2011 or 2012. And I think Submit Hub is partially to blame for that. Mm. But... The good publicists stuck around and what they'll do with their clients is they'll be upfront and honest and they'll say, look, we're going to start by allocating a portion of your budget towards Submit Hub. I'm going to take care of, of it for you. I've got experience submitting. I know who to submit to, etc." So they'll go into Submit Hub and they'll use it. And their artists might go, well, wait, why the hell don't I just do that? <clears throat> and so the publicist would say, I mean, it's fine. You can, but I'll take care of it for you. And what we're really going to focus on is sort of building your story generating your fans throughout that and, and, and kind of taking some of the approaches that SubmitHub cannot help with. Um, for example, some publicists have great newspaper connections or radio connections or more traditional media. They're also mm -hmm. going to do a much better job at writing your bio, making sure your press pictures look good and that type of stuff. So I think if you're an artist and you've got the time, there are an endless amount of ways that you can promote your music. I mean, just doing things like Instagram ads. I've seen tons of artists who have had a lot of success with Instagram ads. And um, I think Ari Herstand from Ari's Tech has done a, a few sort of articles, and, and he's a big believer in this approach. And yes. I mean, it works for a lot of people. So it's, it's that spaghetti approach, right? And SubmitHub is just one sort of efficient tool for contacting curators that can help you. Um, now, within SubmitHub, there are a whole bunch of different strategies you can use. And I think a lot of people gun straight for the Spotify playlisters. But personally, I am still a big believer in blogs and what they have to offer. And I think while many of them have seen their listenership dwindle to a fraction of what it used to be back in the heyday of music blogging, so the heyday was 2012, 2013, I'll give you Indie Shuffle as an example. I think we were doing somewhere around 6 million streams per month back then on our blog, which made us one of the biggest music blogs out there. And now we're down to about a million per month, mm. which still makes us one of the biggest out there. But it shows you how much it's shrunk, right? And so if a blog was only getting 5,000 visitors a month previously, now they're probably down to 1,000. So a lot of artists might look at that and go, well, hold on, where's the value with that? I really want Spotify plays. But I think... Blogs have a lot to offer. Um, you've got someone writing about your music, someone who's actually going to think about it and say something, which has a much more lasting and profound effect on, on you as a music maker than someone chucking your song into a playlist would do. And yeah. that review is going to stick around as well. It's probably going to show up in Google. So if someone searches for you in a month or two months or three years, there's going to be that review right there talking about you, about your song, maybe adding a little bit of context there. So that's an example of a strategy you could take on SubmitHub. Go in there, target the blogs, and use that to try and build up your online profile, not just for the playlists, but for the, the SEO and the search engine optimization and just um, essentially your resume, right? Uh, I mean, one day you might want to work with Universal Music Group or Sony or Warner and they're going to want a little bit more information about you. And if they search for you in Google and a bunch of blog posts show up, that's going to be a good sign. And none of yeah. those playlists are going to show up. They're just not going to be visible because you were in there for a couple of weeks. You picked up a few thousand plays. You got your $3 from Spotify royalties. But at the end of the day, those, those listeners didn't stick around. And, and there's, there's really no longevity there. So for me, music blogs are still really great just in terms of, of kind of that, that social, oh man, I mean, there's another thought right there. Uh, you get blog coverage, go share it with your fans. It's something you can actually share. Here's a screenshot of the blog Huge. coverage or a link to it. Or, so there's, 
there's all these ways to sort of get social verification and boost yourself. And heck, that's just one strategy you can use on SubmitHub. There are quite a few others. Yeah, getting other people to talk about you is a big deal. And I've noticed this even as someone who's a podcaster and serial author and somebody who started communities and businesses. It's not easy work. So if you can get people to talk about your music and then utilize that as part of your, your ongoing marketing and messaging, I think that's huge. And I like what you said about the evolving role of the publicist or marketer too. I think a couple of years ago, I helped out with the crowdfunding campaign and we successfully raised $15,000 for a jazz artist. And yeah, we really did kind of try everything. I think the top three things ended up being posting to her website, her email list and Facebook ads. But we even tried posting to Medium and LinkedIn and we tried YouTube ads and Google ads. So we had a little bit of play in terms of uh, money that we could experiment with. But yeah, you don't really know until you go into it and experiment with those different tactics. You mentioned Indie Shuffle, and of course, you probably knew that I'd be getting to this. Mm-hmm. But uh, in an interview, you said that after university, you got a job in executive compensation consulting at Google. I can only imagine there would be a ton of red tape around a job like that. And then you started the music blog, Indie Shuffle, on the side. And it seems like that was your true passion. It even led to the creation of online playlists before they were a thing. And it sounds like you were mainly counting on ad revenue. So were you monetizing your blog in other ways? No, we have always been staunch opponents of payola. Um, So payola is the practice of taking money for coverage. Mm. And we've steered clear of that. So historically, the only source of revenue for Indie Shuffle has been online advertising. And I think, as many people are aware, online advertising today is not what it was a while ago. And... I think for most publishers, it's very difficult to earn anything from your online advertising in 2020. Yeah. Um, so what we found, I mean, back in the day, we were earning $500 or more per day from advertising on our blog, which was a big chunk of money. And it meant that we could employ people and do all sorts of cool stuff. We would do South by Southwest showcases and sink money into that. And it was cool. Today, I think uh, I just checked and we've averaged $7 per day for the last week in our ad revenue. So, and, <laughs> right. and so that's like a, a, you know, almost a 100x change, but our traffic hasn't changed that much. And in fact, our advertising, we, we're still delivering similar numbers of ads. And I think you know, the entire landscape has changed. So that model is gone. I mean, I, I don't know what Pitchfork's doing anymore or, or where their money's going to come from. I don't know what Stereogum does. All these other websites, where's their money come from? I really don't know. And, and I have a feeling that they're probably sitting around wondering the same question. Uh, where's the money going to come from? Yeah. And it's not just music blogs, right? It's, it's any independent publisher online and even the ones who we wouldn't term independent are probably also struggling. Um, the, the model just doesn't work anymore. And yeah, so, so for Indie Shuffle, at this point, we're just keeping it going because we like doing it. And, and we're fortunate that um, you know, Submit Hub allows us to cover a few of our costs with Indie Shuffle. So I think Indie Shuffle as a blog on Submit Hub makes about $700 to $800 a month. Mm. And so we're able to turn that around and invest it into keeping Indie Shuffle alive. So Nice. Yeah, I think it was six, seven years ago that I was already writing about this because I'd recognized that ad revenue was going to start to go down. And I was basically presenting affiliate marketing as a possible solution. And of course, there is certainly opportunity to earn on affiliate commissions, but it depends on your audience and your blog and what type of products you could potentially promote to them. So it'd be a solution in some cases, but not in every situation. Yeah, you know, it used to work okay for us. And, and we had this thing with um, Apple links where people would click on an Apple link and then any purchase they made for the next three days in the Apple store counted towards our commission. And I think we made, you know, 50 or $60 a month from that. But today, I don't know how many people are buying stuff in the Apple store. Um, you know, yeah. this was 2010, <laughs> 2011. This was before streaming was a thing. And so people were actually going and buying songs. And that's how we were getting that. I think I was like a 2% commission on it. Uh, so 
And for a music blog, I don't really know if there are any good opportunities for commission these days. And, and I think you'll see um, you know, Hype Machine, as an example, have shifted towards a donation-based model for their revenue. And, and even then, I'm, my understanding is that they're not able to work on Hype Machine full-time anymore. It's mm. three, three employees living in New York, and I think they're pulling in about $15,000 a month, which is great money, but it's uh, probably not enough to support people living in New York City. I mean, that, that works out to 60 grand a, a year each, which in South Africa would make you incredibly wealthy. But in New York, I, I mean, you can probably afford a meal a day. Yeah. Yeah, that might be okay for a solopreneur or a small team, but it's definitely not, it's definitely not huge income. So back then... You got things up and running. You negotiated a 180,000 advertising deal. You left Google. You moved to Europe. It sounds like maybe you were going to enjoy your newfound freedom. But then the drama unfolds. The money stops coming in, and you were asked to pay it back so it could be redistributed to investors. And then came the lawsuit. So how are you feeling in that moment? Wow, you nailed it. Um, <laughs> I, don't think I, I don't think I was panicked too much, right? Because... As soon as the writing was on the wall, we actually switched our advertisers and I think it was the end of 2013, early 2014. So there was still some money in advertising and we were able to still pull in, I think we were getting around five or $6,000 a month. So I didn't panic, but one of my first moves was actually to move back down to South Africa, which is where I, I grew up. And I, I hadn't been here for about 16 years, but the cost of living was at least a third of what it was in the States. So... Mm. It was almost as if I was still earning $15,000 a month. And that was kind of step one in avoiding the panic. But I, I would say I did have a little bit of concern. And, and, and without that, I don't think SubmitHub would have been born because I realized that the odds of Indie Shuffle growing, not just in audience, but in revenue, were stacked against us. You had uh, 2013, 2014, Spotify being introduced into the States. You had SoundCloud starting to lose a lot of their steam. YouTube was taking up all the search results, so we weren't getting any search traffic. And um, yeah, I think at that point I started to explore other opportunities. So I, I went to do some freelance work for a few other music blogs who wanted uh, sort of a universal music player similar to what Indie Shuffle had. Hmm. And so I whipped that up for them. It was, it was, it was, and still is unique. Um, I think a lot of people take it for granted these days that. You know, you hit play on a song and navigate to another page and the song keeps playing. Um, you know, when we, when we integrated that on Indie Shuffle, we were sort of the first and all the other music blogs were wondering how the hell they could do the same thing. So I went ahead and helped a few people do that, but I knew in the back of my head that my days were numbered with Indie Shuffle. I had a couple more years at best of being able to support yeah. myself from it and I had to think of a different idea. So that is actually one of the driving reasons behind why I started SubmitHub. Um, I mean, and, and the idea of SubmitHub was obviously based on the fact that my inbox was crowded and impossible to use. So those two factors came together, I think. You know, the, the fact that Indie Shuffle as, as a source of a living was not going to be viable in the future. And the work from Indie Shuffle was actually increasing. So I had to kind of solve both of those. And, and yeah, uh, end of... Gosh, when was it? End of 2015. That's when I launched Submit Hub. So it took me, mm. I remember, I remember mid-2015 or like March, April, I went back up to Amsterdam to escape the winter. And I, I got really lucky and, and a friend offered the opportunity to house sit for two months for free, which was amazing. So I just went up there. I did that. That was a great way to not have to pay rent. And um, I remember just getting like super high all day, every day, and trying to come up with this idea <laughs> and code it. And like the original versions of SubmitHub that I, I coded, I tried to do in a language called Python, which I had zero mm. understanding of. And I was simply doing because one of my good friends had said, no, you, got, you have to know Python, you have to do it. So I was like two months I spent trying to get this thing up and running, and I, I just gave up. Um, and I came back to South Africa, and I started it again with a different coding stack. And yeah, by... by November of 2015, that's when SubmitHub launched. So to answer your question, was I panicked when Indie Shuffle was, was dying? No, I it, it, was, it was a slow sink. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it was, it was really annoying to have all that money taken away. I think of the $180,000 that we were guaranteed, we ended up walking away with $5,000. So that was, that was kind of shitty. And I, I, but I was, I was in a fortunate situation. And when I left Google, I had a lot of money in my nest egg, so to speak. Mm. And, and I think, you know, some entrepreneurs have asked me in the past, um, when should you quit to take your hobby full time? And my answer has always been, you shouldn't do it until you've got at least two years of backup money that you can live off of while everything else fails. Wow. Two, three, whatever. So, so for me, I actually had that money and, and, um, uh, I, I, I was able to, to keep afloat without going into panic mode. Um, my good friend who quit Google at the same time to sort of go on this journey with me didn't have that money. He tried to start up and, and when that started floundering, he had to end up looking for full-time work again. So, mm. and, and he, he hadn't had that nest egg. He was sort of hoping that his startup would take off. So yeah, if, you, if you're going to quit your job <laughs> to pursue a dream or a passion or a hobby, make sure you got enough money to cover you in that worst case scenario. Because even, even if you do succeed, you probably will have to go through some patches of worst case. No, that's great that you were able to take that calculated risk. And I actually totally agree with that viewpoint. I've had to take some leaps of faith in the past that uh, maybe I didn't necessarily want to take. I had a contract that I dropped recently that was pretty lucrative, but... I felt uh, it was important for my progress, but still a calculated risk. It's like I had a bunch of other small projects on the go and I picked up a couple more and, and I'm doing all right. So, and I'm also, it seems like I'm saving a lot of money right now uh, amidst the, the virus scare and everything. So that has worked out. As long as you still have money coming in. Cause I know a lot of people don't yes. right now. And <laughs> yes, I do. And, uh, yeah, this is good. I mean, 2020 was supposed to be awesome. I don't know what's happening. Yeah, I think, I mean, hopefully it improves in the next few months. I have no idea. Things yeah. are still kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Still kind of weird. Still kind of weird. Yeah, and uh, on your point about emails, because I really wanted to touch on that too. It's like I celebrate on the rare occasions I get a message that's thoughtful and clear. <laughs> what are some things musicians should know about sending effective emails to influencers and gatekeepers? Uh, yeah, don't send emails. Hmm. Fair <laughs> enough. Use the method. So, I mean, it boils down to the fact that you kind of want a clear and consistent format to it. And when you are receiving lots of emails and they're all coming in, a completely different way, it's going to throw you off. So if someone's got a, a zip file, the other one's got a SoundCloud link, this one's got a Spotify link, this one's got a long bio, this one's just got three words, that inconsistency just makes it quite difficult to sift through all of it. And I think what yes. a lot of curators actually want is consistency so that they can sit down, do the task at hand, and move along. They know exactly what they're in for before they do it. They're prepared. They do it. They can be efficient. They know, I mean, like just the whole process is very efficient for them. And I think that's why Submit Hub has been so successful, besides the fact that they make money. Um, it, it really makes this, this, the process way easier. So my advice is A, skip the emails, um, and B, if you really have time, yeah, sure, the emails might not matter. I mean, they might not be a bad idea because so many other people are skipping the emails now. I guess... Yeah. I, I'm doubling back on my own words here, but that is kind of one of the ironies. Um, you know, Indie Shuffle's gone from more than 300 emails per day. I think now we're getting two or three. Wow. That's a huge decrease. I'm one kidding. reason is because I, I messaged MailChimp and I said blacklist my email. Like no one hmm. can add me to a list. That, that was probably a big reason. But people have just stopped using emails as a way to pitch music because it was so inefficient. And if you do it today you're probably going to get a response telling you to just use SubmitHub. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's basically my answer, that SubmitHub exists so that you don't have to email people. It's so that you don't have to go through. But there's, there's definitely a faction of bloggers who don't like SubmitHub, who, are, who, are, who think it's a terrible <laughs> thing for, for the community and for musicians. And, yeah, you should probably email those people if you can find them. It's, it's definitely not for everyone, but um, I, I think... I think a lot of those guys haven't had a situation yet where they are getting hundreds of emails. So they don't really 
understand the problem as much. But I suppose the same could be said of 90% of SubmitHub's curators. Uh, most of them didn't live through the heyday of blogging and, and probably never really suffered from an overflowing inbox. They just find SubmitHub a, a way more efficient way to operate their hobby and, and actually make some money that they can turn around and reinvest into it. I guess that might be the case. I just figured if I was getting 30 emails a day, 40 emails a day, that a lot of these other people would be getting the same. But uh, I guess some blogs are probably not as not as busy or they ignore their emails completely. Who knows? I'm certainly not Tim Ferriss teasing out the habits of the extraordinary, but I always like to ask a few questions related to, you know, habits and routine and uh, successes and so forth. So that's the section of the interview we're getting into. Uh, cool. So, so what is your routine like? What is your mindset as you approach your business on a daily basis? Okay. Well, I think probably the biggest factor in my routine right now is that I've got a six month old and a two and a half year old. And mm. Yeah, that, that makes things pretty hectic, um, yeah. especially because <laughs> lockdown has been pretty tough. We had, uh, yeah. we've, we've got some help now, but for I think the, the first month and a half, we, we had no help. Um, so my routine starts when my six-month-old decides it's time to wake up. It's usually <laughs> around six or seven. I try to go running every morning, which we're now allowed to do for the last week. We've been allowed to go running in the morning. And then, yeah, my work during the day... I. I usually work, I would say, from 9 to 12, 1 to 4, and 7 to 10. So hmm. probably nine hours in a day. And then on weekends, I tend to also work again. So I'll work a couple hours in the morning and work in the evening. I think one of, one of the techniques I've used in my work that comes in quite handy is having a, sort of a zero inbox. So there's some people who just let the emails build up until they've got 10,000. Yeah. But I've got I got no emails. Well, no, I mean, sure, it's been we've been on this podcast for forty five minutes. What am I talking <laughs> about? I got twenty emails. But um, the first thing I'll do when when we finish this is I'm going to go ahead and and kind of respond to all of those emails so that they don't build up because yeah. I don't want those tasks sitting there until it becomes a mountain that I have to tackle. So I think one of the approaches I take in my work is just making sure that things are moving along efficiently and I'm not procrastinating on stuff. So if there's a task that has to get done, I'm going to do it now because putting it off is just going to make me feel worse later and now too. So I don't know if that's sort of the Tim Ferriss thing, but I mean, I'm it way off of yeah. his, his five-hour work week bullshit. But. <laughs> well, yeah, you can't, uh, you can't work four hours a week. That's not how that works. Tim himself wasn't doing that. It just happened to be the title that resonated with people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think... A lot of people are, are aiming for that. And there was a point actually where SubmitHub was doing pretty well at sort of keeping closer to that. But, mm. but what the four hours meant was that was the four hours of work. And then the other 40 hours I got to spend coding, which was fun. Oh, yeah. So maybe that's one way of looking at it. And um, I think for me, my, my best contribution is still sitting here coding. Um, I mean, if you go use SubmitHub, I'm, I'm the only one who has ever coded on it it's entirely built by me and so if i can keep building that that's going to be a much better allocation of my time so i guess i guess maybe my goal is to be like tim ferris again but my four hours are going to be the that that's the the stuff i don't want to do and then the 40 hours will be the the coding it makes sense, actually because there was a study a little while ago showing that the top performing ceos in the world spent 30 minutes of productive time daily. So only 30 minutes was fully productive. It's crazy. I would imagine that could be a bit misleading um, <clears throat> because much of a CEO's role is going to be facilitating the work of those under them, sitting down, listening to what they have to say, and then providing guidance and input and direction. So mm. it depends on what you qualify that 30 minutes as. Uh, by the time you're a CEO you're kind of just going to be sitting in the chair going from meeting to meeting with a bunch of people presenting stuff to you and it's your job to make sure that they're headed in the right direction and that you're initiating the right overall tasks that are going to happen. So for me, I suppose, well, i got Dylan on my team now. So Dylan's been with SubmitHub for over four years since the beginning. He was with Indie Shuffle as well. And we're slowly starting to build a team under him and he's got... A, a great instinct for this leadership. But uh, I mean, ultimately, I think our goal is for Dylan to be able to sit there and 
get other people to do all of the stuff that he wants to do because he can't do it as one person himself. So yeah. that sort of leads me to that CEO role where you're executing everything in your mind and your actual productive output might not be much, but what you're trying to do is channel that energy and that vision into all the other people underneath you who are doing it. So yeah, I, am I doing that? I don't know. <laughs> I just want to code. <laughs> I hear you. And that's a great insight. I think it's just about choosing the things that you want to be part of. I know Dirk Sivers insists on doing absolutely everything himself, even to this day. Uh, I, I rely a little bit more on automation and, and team myself, but ultimately I'm just a workaholic and I spend all my time writing. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, what are some of the greatest challenges you've overcome as an entrepreneur? I've always been the type of person who just keeps going through challenges. So when something hits you hard, you just have to finish it. There's no, there's no giving up and moving on. Yeah. And I, I kind of remember that from, from my earlier days of school, uh, particularly in the context of math, right? You get faced with a problem you just can't solve, but the answer was never to move along. The answer was to solve it. You have to figure it out. So tackle it from a different problem. Well, I'm mm. sorry, a different approach. <laughs> and, and I tend to take the same approach as an entrepreneur. Biggest challenge Here's an interesting one. The, the bigger and more popular Submit Hub has become, the more negative feedback I've received. Hmm. And that's been both productive and challenging, I suppose, because it stings a little bit. You, know, you, you spend all this time building this product. You hope it works. You hope it's doing something nice for people. And then no matter how well you're doing it, you're going to have people tear you down and just rip you apart. And they often don't have nice things to say. So that has been one of the tougher parts. And, and I've spent a lot of time trying to craft and change our, our messaging to avoid those types of responses. So I mm. think I alluded to this early on in our podcast of trying to set expectations up front about how difficult Submit Hub can be and, and the rejection you're going to face as you go through it. And much of that expectation setting was in response to a lot of the negative feedback that I received from people. So, hmm. I mean, I remember Ari Hostand writing an article about Submit Hub, one of the first ever reviews of Submit Hub, and he wasn't happy with a lot of stuff. And, and that to me was like a, oh, fuck moment, you know? That just didn't, <laughs> it didn't feel good. And um, so I spent a lot of time trying to make that better, if you will. And I won't say I'm... I'm there yet or it's totally solved. But I think that has been one of the bigger challenges is trying to adapt the product to keep as many people happy as possible when the product itself is entirely built on rejection. Um, hmm. it's, a, it's a difficult <laughs> run, right? Because by nature, right. um, Hub is going to make people feel unhappy. So how do I position that, brand that, and share it so that a, they're not unhappy, and, and B, I'm not facing a slew of, of hate mail when I wake up. And I've, I've definitely gotten some yeah. very mean things sent to me, uh, and obviously lots of tweets. That's kind of a, the haven for people saying nasty things. So, yeah, yeah. That's, that's been one of the bigger challenges. And, uh, I mean, I, f I feel like I'm in a pretty good space about it today. But, yeah. That's a great response. I like that a lot. And then on the flip side, what are some of the greatest victories you've experienced? With Submit Hub? Wow. Yeah. I, I would never have anticipated it to be as big as it is. So we just hit mm. 1,300 curators, 1,300 active right now as we speak. And, you know, I mean, it just started with Indie Shuffle. I think by month one, we had 10. And it's just crazy to me that there are that many curators actively using this. And they come back there. I mean, I don't want to say they're addicted, but they're addicted. Uh, the other crazy thing is there's been more than 11 million submissions. Hmm. And a million wow. of those have come in the last month and a half. Oh, month. Wow. It's like the acceleration is crazy as well. So that, that's been a pretty big victory. I mean, we, we had a little partnership with UMG. That was a pretty cool one to tick off. Uh, so getting that acceptance into the basically the major labels use Submit Hub to pitch their music now was also sort of a, a verification in a way that what we were doing wasn't just you know, a terrible idea meant to steal money from artists, but rather actually something of value. So yeah. that's one of the victories. Um, I don't know. 
I guess I don't compartmentalize things like that as much, you know, the challenges or victories. So in a way you're asking some, some <laughs> difficult questions, which I suppose is the whole point. But, um, yes. you know, I, I don't set those milestones. We don't like pop champagne bottles when we hit them. And uh, I'm just plodding along and trying to get to the next step. And um, I mean, right now, we got a great problem to deal with, which is that we're actually signing up way too many Instagram influencers. It's like, whoa, what do we do? Mm. Um, so is that a challenge? I guess that's a challenge we're going to face. But is that a victory as well? I guess. Um, we just passed 200. We've signed up 200 of them in like three months. Wow. Um, and influencers is an interesting space to get into. Um, Very much so. Of, people are asking what's going to happen after Spotify playlists. Uh, I believe... I actually saw earlier today there's a whole lot of brouhaha going on in the bloggers chat because it looks like Spotify is rolling up an update where you can no longer tailor your playlists. We'll see if this is true or not. Uh, they're, huh. they're all debating whether it's true or not, but apparently the new version of the app doesn't let, uh, let you fill in information, doesn't let you like reorder tracks, doesn't let you upload artwork, and it sounds like Spotify is really trying to clamp down on independent playlisting and essentially get rid of it, um, <sighs> which is not well, surprising to me. So no, I think it's a not lot of surprising. The, no, no. I mean, there's multiple reasons why. Uh, obviously, it's it's there's a lot of people trying to take advantage of artists with fake playlists. But the other one is, um, you know, the more Spotify has control of everything, the 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 more people rely on them, if you will. Definitely. And, um, yeah, we'll see where that goes. But I think influencers is an interesting um, space to explore because, well, you you got Instagram and TikTok, which are both potentially quite influential with music, but still the slight unknown, right? Uh, I think I think Facebook says that they're going to pay, they, or they are paying when people use music stickers, but no one knows how much they're paying. And I, to date, still haven't managed to get anyone to tell me if they've ever received any money from Facebook, but it's supposedly a thing. So yeah, we'll see where it goes. I, I mean, I'm pretty excited about it. We just need to make sure, I suppose this is one of our big challenges now is making sure that the, the, the influencers are adding value for artists and that they are um, sort of scaling well within Hub. I don't want to suddenly have 3000 influencers and 10 blogs. Uh, yeah. I still think blogs are, are kind of, one of the best in the music industry. So, yeah, maybe maybe we should connect again in a year, and I can tell you what's happened with the influencers. Okay, that would be that would be fantastic for sure. We'll, a, we'll call it dissecting the death of Submit Hub. What went wrong? <laughs> yeah, the influencers, wow. man. With with so many changes happening at once, I mean, that's it's tough to keep up, but. I, I related too to what you said about you know sometimes you don't really stop and think about your victories. Or any of it because i guess if you're kind of a zen person in your daily life you're just engaged in the work and you're just going to wake up and do it again anyway <laughs> and and so you don't really recognize the victories unless you actually stop and do them and I actually have lots of friends that are the same way that they don't realize when they've hit a goal and they kind of need to be recognized or acknowledged for it or just acknowledge it themselves so they know when they've reached it um are there any books that have helped you in your journey yeah um I've been reading Philip Pullman. Hmm. Yeah, I reread his dark materials. I, re I read them when I was, I think, a teenager, and I reread them last year. And now I'm reading Philip Pullman's like follow-on series to it. And uh, <laughs> I guess that gets me to my point that for me, reading material needs to be a disconnect from work and a disconnect from sort of that that type of of thinking with my brain. So when I read, right. I wanna I wanna read fiction. I wanna read fantasy. I wanna read stuff that that takes me away from from this endless cycle going on in my head where I'm constantly just thinking about work and submit hub. Um, so it's a good way to disconnect from that and, and to do something different. So yeah, Philip Pullman's been, been the one right now. And I've, I've, you know, slipped a few other books in there in the mix, but they're almost always, no, not almost always. They are always fiction. I, I just cannot sit down and read a, a thinking book. It just doesn't work for me. Hmm. I'm thinking all day anyway. So why, why do more of it? Like that should, I, mean, I mean, the other thing is I don't really watch much TV or movies. And so mm -hmm. I never really shut off my brain in that way. So yeah, that's, that's where books come in. This is from a more fiction side. And I uh, had to take a six-month break while the, the newborn was still sleeping in our room, but she's out now. 
so we can read mm. again at night, which is nice. So yeah, reading before bed, fiction. Mm. That's that's my cup of tea. Mm. I like it. Yeah, give yourself a little bit of an escape there. Well, I love this conversation. Thank you so much for your time and generosity, Jason. Is there anything else I should have asked? No, I appreciate that you asked some different questions. That was quite cool. That was the idea. <laughs> I like yeah. to try to get in whether people can't so or don't. Yeah, that was awesome. All right. Thank you. So in closing, I wanted to let you know about a free report that I put together for you. You can download it at musicentrepreneurhq.com slash free dash report. That's free dash report. This ebook easily answers the top 10, if not top 30 questions you've come to me with in my inbox and comments. And there isn't a ton of reading to do. There's a little bit of reading in there. Most of it is answered in video format. So you can either listen or watch the PowerPoint presentation and get your question answered. And just one more thing, we are nearing 200 episodes of the new music industry podcast. It's been an amazing run. We plan to continue on. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash new music industry. Thank you for listening. Music in this episode was brought to you by Brian Young. Wherever you're listening to this right now, please consider leaving a five-star review and comment to help us get the word out about the podcast. Music